Um, we are in a series called The Whole Story. And so if you're new with us, what we're doing is trying to tell uh, the entire story of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation um, as a whole, complete, a unified story. It's one story telling of this Messiah who would come and who would say, he would literally take away the sins of the world, who would intercede and represent and be the substitute for his people and the, the people of Israel, uh, the people of this world in 2022 are longing for healing and longing for wholeness and longing for someone to intercede and this person who can his name is Jesus Christ, and he does intercede for his people. So this morning, we're turning a corner in the whole story out of the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, and now into the New Testament. And so the title of this message is, The Time is Fulfilled, or you could say, The Wait is Over. And so here is the anchor text uh, of this morning. It's in Mark chapter 1, verses uh, 14 and 15. And it says this, Mark writes, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel. That word gospel means good news. Proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So here is all of the ground, kind of the big picture ground that we have covered over the last, this is week 12, so over the last 11 weeks, this is everything that we have covered. Here's the story so far. God created a kingdom and he is the king, but he made human beings to represent him in that kingdom. And Adam and Eve, his first creation, rejected this call and it had consequences. It led to sin and death. But God promised them, he promised to defeat the serpent who deceived them into disobedience or rebellion against God. He promised to defeat this serpent through the seed or the offspring of this woman Eve. And this offspring will also be the seed of Abraham who would come down the line from her. And through Abraham's family, and specifically Judah's royal seed or offspring, David, the covenant blessings would come to the world. And humanity, as, as, as God continued to reveal himself over time, found themselves in a predicament. All of this guilt that they couldn't fully get rid of or absolve themselves of. And, and there was this recognition that all people were guilty and deserved death. And so God gave this law through his servant Moses, which included sacrifices, which revealed more clearly their need, the people's need for a substitute. And this substitute would be one who Isaiah and the psalmist, David and others would write as this, would, would name as the suffering servant. Somebody is going to come and serve humanity and suffer as their substitute. Through the servant and through the work of the, the, the Holy Spirit, God would establish a new covenant with the people and give lasting life to his people in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we talked last week about the new heavens and the new earth. Our reality is not that we're going to be some little uh, chubby angel babies on clouds somewhere but we are actually going to live on a recreated earth and, a recre and, and the heavens will be recreated. Everything that you love about this world and, and the natural world around you will just intensify in its beauty and goodness. No death, no decay. 
So we turn the corner this morning in the story so far, and the corner that we're turning says this, Jesus is the one through whom all of these promises that have come to humanity find their fulfillment. Jesus is the one through whom all of the promises of the Old Testament find their fulfillment. Now, um, my kids have grown up in this community. My kids have grown up in this church community. And one of the realities of their life where daddy is the pastor is that they're often among the very last people, the first people to arrive here in, on Sundays and among the very last people to leave. And I don't know if you know this, but kids, older ones, younger ones, it doesn't really matter, right around noon, it's been a long morning, they start to get pretty impatient, right? They need, they, they want to get home, they want to eat, they, they want some free play, they want to rest. Waiting for them is often hard. It's just hard. You'll, you'll hear them just kind of like tugging on me or see them tugging on Meredith and I towards the end of the day. Waiting is hard. Um, Meredith and I also, we ordered some new furniture back in February, and it was supposed to be complete and, and on our doorstep in mid-April. And right around mid-April, Meredith called and checked on it and found out that it wasn't complete, hadn't shipped, no notification, no communication. And apparently it's going to be here sometime this month. Maybe. We'll see. Waiting, when we're waiting on something that we're excited about, it's, it's tough. Mom's in the room, you're waiting on everything, it seems like. You're waiting on all kinds of things. You're waiting on your kids constantly. Get your shoes, like get your backpack, get your jacket, get in the car, buckle your, whatever. I mean, we're waiting consistently. You're waiting on your husbands, I'm sure. They're waiting on you too. Waiting on um, things to, like projects in homes, businesses, waiting on movements in career, waiting on news of your health, waiting on projects. Waiting is constant. Waiting. We're just waiting. I mean, it's like they say a couple of things are constant, death and taxes. I think waiting is, should be in that list too. We're always, we're always waiting on something, which requires a, a, a considerable amount of patience in us. Our patience or lack of it is often revealed in the waiting. And waiting is painful oftentimes. Just the reality, we're waiting on stuff, we're waiting on things to develop, it's painful. So here's what I, here's what I want to ask of you. Describe what you feel when the wait is over. What do you feel? Just a word or two or a phrase. Church, talk back to me. What do you feel when the wait is over? Joy? Okay. Excited, relief, might have heard another relief over here. Satisfaction. Satisfaction. What other words do you have? Elated. When the wait is over, we feel joy and satisfaction and relief. We feel elation. Here's a question I want to ask you this morning. Have you ever connected your waiting to your anxiety? When we're forced to wait for something, it makes us anxious. And anxiousness is not only this and chewing the fingernails. That's how I viewed anxiousness a majority of my life. But we do all kinds of things when we're anxious. And sometimes when we're anxious, our very first inclination is to fix it. And so we rush in to, to retake control 
or to get the power back. Uh, we lash out. How many of uh, don't raise your hand, but how many of you <laughs> lash out when you're an, when you're anxious about something? There's something that's weighing on you, and you're just feeling some anxiety, and you don't like the weight. And often you uh, will lash out, or I will lash out. We medicate for comfort in all kinds of different ways when we're feeling anxious. We also withdraw and we shut down in our anxiousness. So it comes out of us in all kinds of different ways. And a common denominator when you and I are anxious or in the grip of anxiety, a common denominator is that we, we trust in ourselves. We put all of our focus on ourselves. A church father named Augustine, he wrote in the fourth century, he was from northern Africa, and he, in Latin he called this incurvitus in se, curved in on self. We, in the grip of anxiety, we oftentimes curve in on ourselves. But our anxiety can also be a gift. It's a marker for what? to look up. It's a marker for us to bend our souls, our minds, our imaginations Godward instead of curving in on ourselves. So anxiety can be a springboard to trust, to dependence, to relenting, to giving ourselves to God and what he wants to do. Waiting is a legitimate challenge. Israel had so, so many ups and downs. So much waiting. Jim, you prayed for that this morning as we were just in our prayer huddle. You're just talking about how Israel is just waiting, waiting, waiting. The patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they're waiting for promised children. Um, Israel, when they became, they, they were a family and they became a tribe and then they became a nation and they were disobedient before the Lord and um, part, of their, uh, part, part of their judgment and consequence from God as they um, failed to believe that they could enter the promised land was that they wandered in a desert wasteland, literally walking in circles as a massive nation for 40 years. They were waiting to enter the land of Canaan. David was anointed a king 15 years before he became functional king. 15 years is a long time. When we look back in history, we go, oh, it doesn't seem like that much. But 15 years, if you have to wait 15 years to move into that house or to move into that career or to finish that thing, 15 years can seem like an eternity. For several thousand years, the nation of Israel's, their identity had focused on the coming of a Messiah. They're waiting for this promised offspring who is going to deliver them from the power of this serpent. And so in Israel's history, prophets and priests and judges and kings continue to keep Messiah in Israel's consciousness and in Israel's imaginations. They're just constantly speaking, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. We cannot forget God so often in the Old Testament, he would say, remember, 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 remember. And around 500 BC, three prophets uh, were speaking simultaneously, and you'll find their names in the end of your Old Testament. Their names were Haggai, Zechariah, and a guy named Malachi. 
They're called minor prophets just because their writings are smaller. The major prophets, their writings are a lot longer. It's not because one was more important than the other. But these, um, the, these prophets were speaking about judgment, and they were speaking about this coming Messiah who would come and deliver Israel. Here's a view from Malachi. It'll be up on the screen. Malachi, the Lord would speak through this prophet Malachi and say this to the nation of Israel. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Okay, so a messenger is coming who is going to prepare a way And listen to this, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So in their imagination, this messenger and this Lord are kind of wrapped up. They expect them to be one, but we know on the other side of redemptive history that the messenger and the Lord are actually two different people. John the Baptist was the messenger and the Lord was Jesus Christ. He goes on, Malachi goes on in verse 2. He says, But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. So there's going to be some cleansing and purification going on here. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. These are the priests. These are the holy people in the sight of Israel. And he's going to refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Listen to this. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. He's, I'm going to cleanse you, but I'm going to judge you. I will be a swift witness against who? The sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, against the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. You could think emigrant here or refugee with that word sojourner. All of these who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So this is how our Old Testament, this is how the prophets stop speaking in the Old Testament. There's coming a day. So Malachi signals, a messenger is coming and the Lord is coming to his temple. So redemption is on the horizon for Israel. But interweaved here is also this, this word of judgment, which sobers us. So God will comfort, yes, and there's still work for you to do. You have to do what is right. And then Malachi and Haggai and Zechariah, they stop speaking And there's silence for 400 years. Longer than the United States has been a nation. More waiting. Ugh. Waiting is hard. The Jewish expectation They lived on this promise that through Abraham they would become a nation, and they had. They gathered a bunch of people, and they came into a land, and they were uh, at various times a blessing to the world, particularly through King David's reign. They were just prosperous and a major world player. 
But part of this promise of them becoming a, a blessing to the nations around them, it depended ultimately that this Christ, this Messiah, would come and deliver them from God's great enemy, the serpent. Like that's when things are going to actually get good, when we're not just coming up to zero with our sacrificial system, but when this guy, is this, this one who is an enemy of God, is finally dealt with. And at that point, then sin and death would be eradicated too. And then we see, as we start to open up our New Testaments, we talk a lot about Jesus, a lot about the specifics of his life. We'll continue to talk about that in just a few weeks. We're going to start back into the book of Matthew. So I'm not going to tell you all of the details about Jesus's life, but I'm just going to signal some big points. At the point when Jesus was born to his mother Mary and earthly dad Joseph, Israel as a nation was a a complete mess. That 400 years had progressed and Israel is corrupt. They're legalistic. Their lips are really close to God. They're doing all the things. They're the churchy folk, but their hearts are crusty and hard, and and many of them are evil. Not to say all of them, but especially those who are in control of the nation of Israel. They are corrupt. If you were to weigh them on a system of merit, they would deserve judgment far more than redemption, and none of us would have a problem with it. And they're living in Jerusalem, and they're worshiping at the temple. And so they're going through all of the motions, but they're an occupied nation. In 586 BC, Babylon comes in and destroys Jerusalem, their capital city, ransacks their nation, carries off a ton of their nobles and officials into Babylon, enlists them as Babylonian servants. This is what the the book of Daniel is, is all about in the early chapters. They are occupying them. But then 70 years after that, Persia comes in and and takes out Babylon and then inherits Israel. And so they're still an occupied nation, but not by the Babylonians. Now it's by the Persians. And then fast forward a few hundred years and the Greeks come in and they conquer the Persians and they inherit Israel. And now they're still an occupied nation, but it's not by the Babylonians or the Persians. Now it's by the Greeks. And then it happens again with the Romans for 600 years. This is kind of like... If you, uh, if you grew up in, the how, in a house that granddaddy built, but somewhere along the way, your family got into some trouble and needed to sell the house, but the people allowed you to rent it back, and you continued to, to rent this home, you feel like you have a right to the home, like the family history is there, you're living in the place, but you don't actually, be, you don't actually own it. And then these owners, your landlords, they sell it to somebody else, it's not you, and then they sell it again, it's not you, and then they sell it again, it's not you. It's kind of like, like that for Israel. And so part of their hope, this is my point in all of this, part of Israel's hope is that these occupiers the serpent's agents to oppress them would be dealt with too, that they would be freed from them. And the way that Israel saw this happening was actually through war. They saw the Messiah coming, making war on the occupiers, conquering them in their sight and liberating them so that they could be a free nation again. And so you read about things like this in Psalm 2. You shall break them, speaking of the occupiers, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's Israel's attitude toward their occupiers in large measure. So there's there's so much tension in all of this waiting. And people have come over the years claiming to be the Messiah. Jesus is not the first one claiming to be Messiah, but he is altogether 
different from everyone who has come before him. And Jesus arrives on this scene, and the words of Malachi and the words of Zechariah and the words of Haggai are coming true. A messenger is coming saying, prepare the way of the Lord. Look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we see in real history that that man was John the Baptist. There's a prophet who is speaking on behalf of God again. God is not silent. The people are anxious. All kinds of anxiousness. They're anxious for deliverance. Maybe we'll join them and get our freedom that way. Maybe we'll go to war with them and get our freedom that way. Their imaginations, though, for this Messiah who will liberate them are reignited. And we see and we begin to learn that God is about to deliver and cover both sides of the covenant that he made with Abraham way back when in Genesis 15, 16, 17. And this Messiah arrives in a miraculous way. If you've celebrated Christmas, you've heard the story of how Jesus was born of a miracle. He was born to a virgin, his mom Mary. He's a miracle birth, like Isaac, like Jacob, like Samuel, like so many of these people in Old Testament history. Even when Jesus was born, an evil king tried to kill him by taking out all of the, the male um, children that were two years and, and younger, like happened with Moses, too. So we start to see, as we read in the Gospels, this is some of the point here of why I'm, why I'm telling you this. We see in the Gospels that Jesus is strangely like so many Old Testament biblical characters. But as the Gospels unfold, we begin to see that Jesus is a better version. He's like the culmination of all of these people. You could say it like this, if, uh, all, all the stories of the Old Testament whisper his name. They're all whispering of this coming Messiah. He gets baptized by this messenger, John the Baptist, and there, there are people there witnessing who would write about it later, and that's part of what our New Testament is. They heard the Father speak blessing and affirmation on Jesus. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. They saw this, this, this form. The only way they could describe it is he was kind of like a dove. They saw the Spirit of God descend and come to rest on Jesus. They hear God speak. They see God empower Jesus. And the very first thing that, this Holy, that the Holy Spirit does is he drives Jesus out into the wilderness to be tempted by the serpent, to come face. His first move in ministry is to face the, God's enemy down. The Lord has come to his earth, he's come to his people, and he's come to represent them, which is why he immediately faces temptation. The Gospels also show us how this Messiah comes to his temple in Jerusalem. Remember, Malachi said that in the verse that we read earlier, He'll, the Lord will come to his temple we, a few weeks ago, we were talking about temples, and we saw how temples in the ancient mind, not even just the biblical mind, but all um, ancient Near East history, they viewed temples as a place where God would take up residence with humanity. God would, the God of the nation would dwell in the temple and mediate his presence to the people. 
And so in Eden, in the creation story in Genesis, God would reside with his people. He walked face to face with Adam and Eve. They knew one another. His glory and his power were there. And then they disobeyed and they rebelled and God exiled them. They were exiled out of this garden and away from the tree of life, lest they should take a bite of that tree of life and live forever in their fallen, altered state. Then uh, through Moses, they would, God would give Moses instructions to build them a tent or a tabernacle. God would take up residence there and his glory would be visible to these people through fire and, and smoke. And they knew that the glory of God was present there. And, and then um, generations down the line, God gave um, Solomon instructions to build him a permanent temple. And God again took up residence through this permanent temple through fire and through smoke. And the people are consistently disobedient to the Lord and his glory departs. We read about it in the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. His glory slowly inches its way to the threshold of the temple and then out the door. And then Babylon comes in and sacks the city and carries off many of the people. And then Babylon is conquered by Persia, and this Persian king, a guy named Cyrus, he gives some of their, their nobles and their officials permission to go back to the city of Jerusalem and to go back and rebuild the wall around it and the temple within it. And so they do, and he actually funds some of that, and they rebuild the temple. But we don't have any record of God's presence ever coming back and filling that second temple in Jerusalem until Jesus. The Lord comes to his temple, but his glory isn't displayed through smoke and fire. His glory is displayed and seen through his humanity. One of Jesus' apostles, John, would say this, the word or the creating force, the logos, became flesh and dwelt. The word dwelt there is tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the only one and the, the one and only son from the Father. He's filled with grace and truth. He's representing his people as one of them. He's a substitute. He's the second Adam. He's the new Adam. And this Messiah comes with a message in his mouth in Mark 1, 14 and 15. He comes speaking, but not through clouds or from a mountaintop or from an earthquake or from wind storms. He's not a mere prophet either. He comes speaking through the mouth of his son. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint representation, image of his nature. And he comes proclaiming this gospel, this good news saying, hey, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, do something, repent and believe in the gospel. So the idea that he's saying the time is fulfilled is the wait is over. Think about the words that you church used to describe what you feel when the wait is over. Satisfaction, elation, Joy, relief, comfort, 
God is doing a new thing in Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus arrived on the scene, would say, Behold, the former things have come to pass, the old things have come to pass away, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This day is coming, and it has come with Jesus. He says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom is at hand. In the past, uh, we've talked about the kingdom of God, and we'll continue to talk about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is so much more than a national territory. You cannot find the kingdom of God on a map. It's impossible. The kingdom of God is seen and felt and experienced in the hearts of men and women. The kingdom of God, or Matthew's gospel says, the kingdom of heaven, they're the same thing. It's the rule and the reign of God in the hearts of men and women. It's the relational presence and rule of God in the hearts of men and women. What does that mean? The king of the kingdom exercises his rule through his ongoing relationship with us. So think about it this way. You know how when you spend a ton of time with somebody, you start to take on there are all kinds of things from them. Ticks, mannerisms, like inside jokes, but we also start to take on values. We start to become like them. I don't like pickleball, but now all of a sudden I like pickleball because you like pickleball, or I don't like, I don't really get dry humor, but now all of a sudden I get dry humor and I enjoy it, or I don't like musicals and now all of a sudden I do, or I did and now I don't. Whatever it might be, like we start to become like the people around us. We start to take on some of of their values. Maybe you have a hard time being patient, but you watch your friend exercise patience over and over and over and over again, and pretty soon, lo and behold, you start to lean in that direction and value patience too. The kingdom is at hand means the king is near. It's literally at hand, able to be taken, able to be enjoyed, He's within reach. Relationship with the king is ready to be experienced. Here's what it means practically for us. Priests and pastors are not mediating the presence of God to his people. His son is the great high priest. We have act, You don't have to come to me to get to God. You don't have to come to a building to get to God. He is mediating his presence to his people through his son and through his spirit who resides in all of our, who resides in all of those who believe, all of those who trust Jesus. We're temples. God has taken up residence in those who trust him by faith. The king resides within us and reshapes our values by his spirit. And we're, we're going to get um, into this more in the coming weeks. But here is what happens when a, when a person comes to trust Jesus Christ, to trust that he really lived, that he really died, that he really does take our shame and give us his righteousness. New believers experience a foretaste of resurrection. Our dead hearts, our hearts that did not want God, that were opposed to God, are brought from death to life. And it happens when we repent of being our own rulers and kings or queens and swear allegiance to the real king. In God's kingdom, I hope you hear this, there are no personal kingdoms. 
there is only room for one king. And Jesus Christ, Son of God, is that rightful king. When he comes in, when he takes up residence within us, when we give ourselves to him by faith, our will and our way gets a makeover. And it happens on the inside. It doesn't start on the outside. It starts within. We are transformed into the will and into the way of Jesus. So he comes saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. And then he tells people, his hearers, to do something. Repent and believe in the gospel. So many of us have heard repentance taught as, if I asked you, the majority of people in the room would say, what does repentance mean? And, and, and you would, if I asked you that, you would say, repentance means changing direction. Probably. No. It includes that. But repentance does not start with our behaviors. It starts in our minds. Repentance begins in our thinking. Repentance is a change of mind about who God is. It's a change in our value system. The things that we begin to value, it's a change in our allegiance from self or other humans to God. And that results in a change of action. Repentance begins in our thinking internally. And Jesus' message here is not just repent, hard stop. And it's not just repent and believe, which believe in what? Like, it, that's, that's vague. That's very vague. I don't, know what to, I don't know what to believe in. There's a lot of things that I could believe in in this day and age. He is directing everyone to, who hears his words to believe in something very, very, very objective. The four Gospels tell the history, the objective history of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is calling his people to believe in the objective good news that God has come, taken on flesh, and has decided to represent us and identify himself with us. I want to ask a question. Are, are you, and it may touch a nerve, are you ever haunted with the thought that God hates you? Are you ever haunted with the thought that God hates you? Are you ever haunted with the thought that he doesn't like you? Are you ever haunted with the thought that he just tolerates you? Barely? Maybe you're haunted with the thought that he's not that concerned about the sin that you're wallowing in that's poisoning you and that's constantly causing you to avoid him and to distrust him and to walk daily in the cement shoes of your guilt and shame. Jesus' first words are not a declaration of war. They are an invitation to peace from the one who has every right to make war. He's asking you and I to repent, to change our minds, to change our value system, to change our allegiances. This gut deep belief, he's asking us to repent of that we can't actually entrust ourselves to him. 
If I give you all of my life, I don't know. I don't know if you'll provide. I don't know if you'll heal. I don't know if you'll come through. I don't trust. He's asking us for his trust. Parents, you know this experience when your kid is on the edge of fear and you're saying, you just got to trust me. You just got to trust me, but you can't do it for them. You're asking them to relent of their fear in order to be caught by you. That is the invitation that Jesus of Nazareth is issuing constantly to the people who he has created. His first words are not a declaration of war, and his life record is a declaration of his mercy and of his goodness. It's so interesting. His first words are an invitation to peace with God, and his last words are a command to those whose souls have been reborn and remade and whose values and allegiances have been transformed. His, he, he commands them to go and tell others that they can get in on this too. That's his command. I need you to go and I need you to, I need you to make this objective news known. You can get in on this too. His very first words are an invitation. You can get in on this. And his last words are, now go tell them that they can too. The heart of God is kind. The heart of Jesus Christ is so, so kind. He calls us to repent and he calls us to believe, which is a call to act. It's a call for us to do something. Make no mistake. Here's how I'll put it. This is what I just want to leave you with this morning. His call to repent and believe in the good news, to repent and believe in the gospel that God has come, is a call to make it your life's mission to pay attention to Jesus. That's what his call is. Can you make it, will you make it your life's mission to pay attention to Jesus? I have made this my life mission, and I was thinking about it this morning, but the way that this works out in my life is so different. There are territories of my heart that are really just open to him, and I'm like, come in, make yourself at home. There are territories of my heart where I'm like, ah, I need a little time first, and then there are territories of my heart where I'm like, stay out. I'm not ready for that transformation. I'm not ready to overcome that fear. I'm not quite ready. And so while my baseline commitment is that my allegiance is to Jesus first and foremost, that I will pay attention to him with my whole life, you need to understand that as I'm telling this story, it happens slowly in some areas and barely in some areas, and it hasn't even begun in other areas, though I've been walking with him for 20 years. And then there's some areas where I, I, I sense that he's speaking, and I'm like, I'll go. And they're not heroic areas, those ones, just so you know. <laughs> he's calling us, he's inviting us to do something with him. Every single day, you and I are either moving toward him or away from him in our daily decisions or thought lives. Adam and Eve were curved in on themselves. They were incurvitous in say. They were curved in on themselves. The God we trust was not curved in on himself. His life was bent outward. He loved, Jesus Christ loved his father. He entrusted himself to the Holy Spirit and therefore was able to love people with perfection and he has rewritten our future. The wait is over. 
The time is fulfilled. The Messiah has been revealed. There is a name above every name who now comes calling your name through his disciples. And what he comes offering you is peace with God and peace within your own soul and peace with the people around you. Some of you have not entrusted yourself to the Lord and you are, you are fun, you're, you're here, but, but you're not. There is an anxiety in entrusting yourself to the Lord. I've seen how this works. It doesn't. And so I'm going to try other things and I'm going to ask, how is that working for you? My name is not Dr. Phil or Dr. Jared. It's just Jared. But how is that working for you? I want to invite you, Christian and non-Christian, there are territories of your hearts that have not relented and you have not opened yourself up to King Jesus. And he is calling your name. He's named something for you already this morning. And he's asking you, can you open yourself up to me? Pray with me. Father, do you help our hearts hear the invitation of our Lord to entrust ourselves to him in whom is no darkness? He's only light. He calls us to come to him. He tells us that his heart is gentle. His heart is humble. He tells us that he will carry our burdens, that his burden is light that we will find satisfaction for our souls. Would you help us to relent and to trust you where we need to trust you? This is a call not just to become a follower of Jesus, but this is a call to continue growing as followers of Jesus too. So would you transform hearts and minds this morning? Would you renew us? The time is fulfilled. Your kingdom is in our midst. Thank you. You call us to change our minds about you and to believe the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who has mercy on his people. In Jesus' name, amen.